You're listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Hot Topics in Allergy, presented by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm Dr. Daniel Line, president of the ACAAI, an association of 4,000 allergy health providers dedicated to enhancing the care of our patients through education and research. Your host will be Dr. Todd A. Marr. Dr. Marr practices pediatric allergy and immunology at Gunderson Lutheran Medical Center in La Crosse, Wisconsin. On today's show, we feature interviews with two experts in the allergy field. The interviews took place at the annual meeting of the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology in Dallas, Texas in November 2007. Our topics are asthma and obesity, and also respiratory devices in asthma. Dr. Bradley Chips is a pediatric allergist and pulmonologist in Sacramento, California. He is medical director of respiratory therapy and the Cystic Fibrosis Center at Sutter Medical Center in Sacramento. Dr. Chips is widely respected in the field of allergy, asthma, and pulmonology, and it's our pleasure to talk to him today about obesity and asthma. Welcome, Dr. Chips. Thank you for asking me to come. Dr. William Berger is medical director of allergy and asthma associates of Southern California. He is a clinical professor at the College of Medicine, Department of Pediatrics, Division of Allergy and Immunology, and an adjunct professor of healthcare management in the Graduate School of Management, University of California, Irvine. Welcome, Bill. Hi. Glad to be here. The link between obesity and childhood and asthma. Bradley, what's new? There's a very interesting study that was just published in the European Respiratory Journal suggesting that especially in females who have asthma, who are obese at age 7, have a 2.0 relative risk increase of still having persistent asthma at age 32. Is that same trend seen in males? The same trend was seen for males, but not as significant. So obesity and asthma prevalence, what do we know? Obesity will predict a higher prevalence of asthma. That is, as body mass index goes above 25 kilograms per meter squared, which is the line between being overweight and obese, then the instance of asthma begins to go up. And once your body mass index is over 40 kilograms per meter squared, is almost 50% higher. What about those people right below the cutoff for obese? What effects are seen in those people? The effects are not statistically significant, but the line begins to move up at about 22 kilograms per meter squared. Pulmonary function testing is recommended in the new NIH guidelines. What effects does obesity play in pulmonary function tests? There are several factors that impinge on that. Number one, if your body mass index, again, is higher than 30 kilograms per meter squared, which is obese, you're likely to have a decrease in the total lung capacity because of the restrictive effect of the fat around your thoracic cavity, but also there are increases in airway obstruction, or which would mean decreases in FEV1, that increase as body weight increases. So we have an asthmatic, an asthmatic classified as obese in our practice. Dr. Chips, what role does the obesity play in relation to medication use for treatment of asthma? When we look at overweight and obese asthmatics, they have a lower response rate to inhaled corticosteroids. They also have a lower response rate to Montelukast, but is not as significant as the lower response rate to inhaled steroids. So saying in another way, obese asthmatics tend to respond slightly better to an anti-leukotriene than they do an inhaled corticosteroid. That same obese asthmatic, what comorbidity should we be aware of? 
There's several very important comorbidities that are seen in the obese asthmatic. The first being gastroesophageal reflux, which as body weight increases, the propensity to have reflux increases, which can drive nocturnal cough and nocturnal wheezing. Also, as body mass index increases, so does the chance of having obstructive sleep apnea, snoring, and sleep-disordered breathing, which can also aggravate the low oxygen or hypoxia seen when asthma is active at night. So this is not just unique to obese adults, is it? This is a continuum that begins often in childhood and continues throughout life. What about quality of life in obese asthmatics? There has been a study presented here at the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology's annual meeting. What's new? In a study that I just reported at this meeting, the quality of life parameters for patients who even gain as little as five pounds can show a significant decrement. And assuming that our model is correct, weight gain of more than 11 pounds would have a significant impact on quality of life. What can we tell our patients? Will losing weight have an impact on their disease? The data is not as pristine in asthma by itself as it is with obstructive sleep apnea, type 2 diabetes, gastroesophageal reflux, but very clearly there is a trend to improvement of pulmonary function and decrease in medication needs and improvement of quality of life as even as low as a five-pound weight loss occurs. Is there anything we as healthcare providers can do differently for our patients? Number one, we have to be very careful about how we treat our asthmatics. That is, patients who are treated with repetitive courses of oral steroid will have the much greater chance of having weight gain, stimulates their appetite. Second, if patients are not treated with an appropriate dose of inhaled steroid, their asthma, A, will not be appropriately controlled. They'll become more sedentary. And as a result of that, of course, weight gain is more likely. Thirdly, if they don't use concomitant therapy, such as a long-acting beta agonist or an anti-leukotriene, which have been shown to be very helpful in preventing exercise-induced bronchospasm, not having that treatment available makes patients, again, more likely to be sedentary because they're going to have an exacerbation of their symptoms when they try to exercise. All these then lead to a more sedentary lifestyle, which common sense tells you it's going to be harder to lose weight if you're not burning extra calories. You are listening to Hot Topics in Allergy presented by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Todd Maher, and I'm speaking with Dr. Bradley Chips and Dr. William Berger. Our topics are asthma and obesity, and also respiratory devices in asthma. Dr. Berger, how is treatment of respiratory diseases different or unique compared to other diseases? Well, you know, when we treat other therapeutic areas, in most cases, uh, the delivery of the medication is not a problem. For example, when you treat people with diabetes, you might give them tablets or injections and high blood pressure, same types of things, tablets, and kids who need antibiotics usually get something with a syrup or tablet or even a chewable tablet. But the thing that is particularly unique about respiratory medicine is that we have to deliver the medicine directly into the lungs. So as a result, we can have the best medicine in the world, but if it isn't delivered directly to the lungs and delivered appropriately to the area of the lung, it's not going to work. It's kind of like telling my patients uh, if they order pizza and it gets delivered to the wrong address, they're just not going to be able to enjoy the pizza. So it's really important that we deliver it to the right area. Dr. Berger, are there particular devices that should be used for delivery? The problem that we have is that there are a multitude of devices. There are many devices, and the bigger problem is they're all having to be used different ways. There are different techniques. And some of them, when you use one, contradict the way you use another. For example, 
the commonly used meter dose inhaler, the one that albuterol comes in, for example, it's a re common rescue medicine, it has to be shaken and then when you press down on it, you have to breathe in very, very slowly in order for it to get all the way into the lungs. The dry powder inhalers, which are used for a lot of the inhaled steroids, for example, are just the opposite. You have to breathe in very fast to get them into the airways. There's a third type of delivery system, a nebulizer system that we use on babies. And one of the problems we have there is it's neither very fast or very slow, but they have to take it at tidal volume, which is normal breathing. So it's very common for a patient to have all different, three different types of systems and not be instructed that they are to be using it in different ways. Does the device determine the patient or does the patient determine the device? This is confusing. What do we do, Bill? There's definitely patient variability. Patients vary. For example, a two-year-old may not be able to use a meter dose inhaler because they can't time it, they can't press down, coordinate the breathing, and then hold it for up to 10 seconds in their lungs. And so it might be better to use a nebulizer that doesn't require that type of coordination. On the other hand, when you use nebulizers, it's really important to know that you really shouldn't be using blow-bys. In other words, blowing it in front of their face. It has to be on their face tightly with a mask. Again, no one is going to know to do that unless they're properly instructed. For our listeners, what issues should they look at for picking the devices they're going to pick for patients with asthma? I think the key issue is first for the physician themselves, the physicians to learn that there's different techniques for different types of delivery systems. And how might providers learn how to use these devices? Well, they're going to either have to uh, read about them, read the package inserts, talk with their drug representative, or go to lectures or read articles on different delivery systems that are published in both the allergy and respiratory literature. Once they learn it, they need to spend the time, either they or their nurse, spend the time teaching the patient and having the patient demonstrate their use. And it's kind of like using your VCR DVD. Someone can show it to you once, and if you have to do it a month later, you're probably not going to remember. So every time the patient comes in, not only should you go over what medicines they're taking, but they should demonstrate for you the proper use of the device. Dr. Berger, are things improving surrounding respiratory delivery devices? Not only is there a real surge in development of new medications, but there's also, and I think appropriately so, a desire to develop better delivery devices that don't require such extreme coordination efforts or don't require a restriction in certain ages. And so what I think is going to eventually happen is we're going to develop small portable delivery systems as opposed to these big nebulizers that are very difficult to lug around, but small delivery systems that don't require a lot of cooperation and only take a few seconds to deliver. Once we have that, I think we're going to see a greater compliance in terms of patients taking their medicine and, as a result, better outcomes. What advice would you give to developers of new devices? You know the old saying, the KISS principle, keep it simple, stupid? And this is one of those times where keeping it simple is going to make it a lot easier to treat our patients with respiratory diseases. Dr. Berger, what do you see in the future for allergic and asthma diseases? I can see that in the future we're going to be having some new medications coming down the line that I think are going to have a significant impact. We've only had one or two of the combination medications, the combination of a bronchodilator and an inhaled corticosteroid. I think they're going to develop better medications, more combinations, more choices for the physician. I think we're developing therapies that will actually 
prevent the allergic reaction. Most of the medications that we use right now treat the allergic reaction or the asthma reaction once it's occurred. We're looking at medications that can block that allergic reaction before it even starts. In a sense, a, a new types of immunization processes and maybe even developing processes that don't require injections that may be able to be taken orally or sublingually under the tongue. I think we're also going to be looking at a lot of new medications that are going to be decreased in their side effects. A lot of the side effects in terms of the jitteriness associated with bronchodilators and some of those things, I think are going to decrease, and I think we're going to find medicines that are going to last longer. Instead of having to take it every four or six hours, you're going to be able to take it once a day and be done for the whole day. Thank you for taking the time at the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology annual meeting to share your views with us. Thank you for listening to Hot Topics in Allergy on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. This show has been presented by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For more information on the ACAAI, please visit www.acaai.org.